Hey, it is good news. We have to dig there to get it. But it is good news. So a few weeks ago, I had a little screenshot that said uh, from the 60s, the old uh, Lost in Space TV show. Do you remember that? Danger, Will Robinson. Danger. Well, um, then we had the theme that Sunday was Danger, New Covenant. Um, So today, our theme is Danger, New Covenant, Part (laughs) 2. So when we take a look at the warning that the preacher, because even though this is a letter, an epistle, listed as a letter or an epistle, and it actually ends kind of like a letter at the very end of chapter 13, the great majority, verses, or chapters 1 through 12, is really like a sermon. So I continually refer to the author of this, um, of this book of Hebrews as the preacher, because I think he was preaching a sermon. And what he is saying to us in this particular sermon um, is to be aware, to be on alert. It's a, it's a friendly warning. And why would he need to, to issue a, a warning to this congregation, this house church, that he is sending this sermon to? Well, a primary reason is that this church community had begun to lose faith. They were discouraged. Um, they were beaten down. You see, they... They had heard the good news. Many of them had been faithful Jews before they um, became followers of Jesus. That didn't mean that it ended their Judaism. No, it fulfilled it. And so they were Jews, and they were Messianic believers, and they were followers of Jesus. And the word was that Jesus was coming back. And they had it in their minds that he was coming back within their lifetime. Now this sermon is written in that second generation of Christians, and so what many scholars believe is that that some of these followers began to lose hope that Jesus was actually going to come back. Now, what would they do if they were with us today? 2,000 years later. You see, it's not just them, but I think it's us, too, that can lose hope, that can begin to wonder and to question. Many were disappointed because they had not seen God's kingdom come like they had anticipated it, like they had expected it. And that may be part of the problem for us, as well as for this early house church is that we oftentimes expect God to work in a particular way, in a particular timeline. But God is God. And God doesn't allow us to dictate the ways or the times that God reveals himself. And so this congregation is beginning to fray and perhaps even a little bit to fall apart. It was losing confidence in the assurance of the promises of Jesus Christ. Now, the preacher does something interesting here, the author of this letter. He uses 
psalm, a psalm that links an Old Testament story to their current situation. And I think we could say that that psalm also links us to that current situation. The people would have been familiar with these, um, what we call Old Testament references for them. They were scriptural references because at this point in time, they didn't have the New Testament yet. They had had some of the letters, like they had the Gospel of Mark perhaps, but by and large what we have as the New Testament did not exist yet. This would have been around 60 to 70 to 80 AD, somewhere in there. Um, I think my guesstimate would be 70 to 80 AD because I think it was shortly after the fall of the temple, but it could have been shortly before it. But anyhow, um, what, what they had to rely on was what we know as the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures. So the preacher uses Psalm 95 to illustrate the current danger that they are in. In Psalm 95, 7b to 11, the writer of the psalm refers to the Israelites and the waters of Meribah. The Israelites had left Egypt and they had wandered in the wilderness, the wilderness of Zin, and then they had ended up in planting in a little region called Kadesh, um, which was right outside of the entrance into the promised land. And as they had wandered through the wilderness, as they had settled in Kadesh, the people were quarreling with Moses because they had no food to eat. And so God had provided for them manna from heaven and quail in the evenings, so that they had bread and meat. And after satisfying those needs, uh, they began to quarrel with Moses again. They said that now they're wanting better water. They're thirsty. There's no water. So, so Moses and Aaron go and, and they fall down before the Lord in the tabernacle in the tent where the Ark of the Covenant is kept. And, and, and the Lord tells them, tells Moses to take the staff that he used to divide the waters of the sea to walk out of Egypt. He said, take that staff and go hit a rock with it and water will come out. And so he led the Israelites to a big rock. He, he whacked it twice with his staff and water poured out. And they still complained. And they still quarreled. What our preacher does is he takes this story and he uses it for their current context. Um, and I think it speaks to our context today as well, translates well. So there's two things that this psalm begins with. And um, if you want to take a look at Psalm 95, uh, I should have marked it here. This is how it begins in seven, uh, the second half of verse 7. If only we would listen to his voice today. If only we would listen to his voice today. This is how the psalmist, uh, this is how the writer of Hebrews um, translates this and, um, and speaks of it. He, he takes the, the psalm and he changes it a little bit. This is what he says. Today when you hear his voice, I'm sorry, I forgot the first part. 
That is why the Holy Spirit says today when you hear his voice. So what he's done is he's added um, the piece about the Holy Spirit. And why that's important is that there's two things that he is trying to focus on. He wants the hearers, us, to know that this is not just a piece of history, this psalm. This is not just something that, that King David dealt with, you know, centuries before. And that we re- recite it, you know, just to, to have a spiritual connection. What he's saying is that the Holy Spirit spoke these words through David. And he speaks, the Holy Spirit speaks these words today for you, the hearers. And so it is by the Holy Spirit and it is spoken for today. Today, the Holy Spirit speaks. When you hear his voice, listen. The warning is spoken in the context of the Israelites quarreling for water. Though they had seen God's mighty work, they still rebelled, and they still went astray in their own hearts. Because they didn't know God's ways, they followed their own ways. And that means that they will not enter God's rest. And that's what you get in the last three verses of this quotation from Psalm 95. The, writer, the preacher says, There your ancestors in the wilderness, there your ancestors tested and tried my patience, even though they saw my miracles for 40 years. So I was angry with them, and I said, Their hearts always turn away from me. They refuse to do what I tell them. So in my anger, I took an oath. They will never enter my place of rest. So what does he mean by the place of rest? Well, the the psalmist was referring to the promised land, the land that would become Israel, the land that was known as Palestine, that this was the place of rest. But because they had disobeyed and had been unfaithful, The Lord would not let them enter that land, that place of rest. So they would die outside of the place of rest. They would die in the wilderness. They would die in Kadesh. Consequences. The rest, this promised land, gets translated for the Hebrews, this house church. How it gets translated is, looking at God's kingdom coming here on earth and those who were deserting that kingdom. You see, we, we may not realize it because we have sometimes memorized things in a way that we kind of forget what we're actually praying. But in the Lord's Prayer, that is part of our prayer, is that God's kingdom, thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. We're praying that that kingdom began to break into this world when Jesus was crucified and raised again from the dead. And so we're praying for that kingdom to come. We want that kingdom to come. But what if we kind of got tired of it because it didn't ever come? I mean, one of the ways that I see that in congregations like our own is like, well, we're not growing pastors, so I think I'll go find another church. Or, you know, the, the people there are so mean, 
and I just don't want to hang out with mean people. Um, you know, there's different ways of, of, of how people take a look at this, but what we're talking about here is that, that the kingdom of God is something bigger than we could ever imagine. I mean, healing is occurring. Miraculous healing is occurring. And people are being, their lives are being transformed. People that have been addicted to drugs, to alcohol, their lives are getting changed and transformed. People that had um, been on death row may still be on death row, but their perspective on life has been changed dramatically by a transformation by the power of the Holy Spirit. You see, the, the kingdom of God is breaking in. And if we don't see it breaking into our particular area, then that may not be an indictment on God. That may be an indictment on us. Because aren't we God's mouthpiece? Aren't we God's hands and God's feet? So then the preacher shares another story in verses 16 through 19. And this really highlights the question of faithfulness versus unfaithfulness. The preacher um, shares three rhetorical questions here, and he has three responses to those rhetorical questions. And these questions and the responses all now come from another story in the Hebrew Scriptures, from November, from November, from Numbers, uh, chapter fourteen, and this is the story of the Israelites waiting now, preparing to enter the Promised Land. So they had sent spies out into the Promised Land, spies from every one of the tribes of Israel, except for the Levites. We don't think the Levites sent any spies, but the other tribes, the eleven tribes, sent spies, and they went and they explored. And they found things that were very alarming and very exciting. The initial report of the spies when they came back to tell the Israelites and Aaron and Moses and all the leaders, the initial report was, it is a scary place over there. I mean, the Amalekites are there, those giants, and they have armies. I mean, armies of armies of people. And you know, it is, it is a frightening venture. I mean, if we go into that promised land right now, we're going to get crushed because they're so mighty and they're so powerful and we're so small and so weak. We've been in the wilderness for 40 years. We're not strong enough to take on these, on these people. And what have they forgotten? The promise didn't depend upon them promise was God's and if God's going to give you a promise God's going to deliver the promise thankfully there was Caleb and uh, not Caleb the swimmer Caleb the spy and uh, Caleb uh, he went and he saw something else I mean he saw fig trees pomegranates, grapevines. It was a land of milk and honey. And this was the land that God had promised them. And so he was really excited about 
taking the people into that promised land. There was another spy in the group. We hear about him a little bit later. He saw the same thing that Caleb did. His name was Joshua. But democracy rules, <laughs> and the people didn't believe them. They believed the louder voices, the ones that said it's a scary place and they're going to kill us. So the three rhetorical questions have to do with this. The preacher sets up the first question, who heard the promises of God and rebelled? Was it not all who left Egypt under the leadership of Moses? What's interesting here is that it wasn't just some of them that gets condemned. It was all of them. Was it some? No, it says all. All of them failed to hear and to trust and to believe and to be faithful. Because God is faithful, he wants us to be faithful to him. But they weren't. And so, as the spies went out and came back with the reports, it was Caleb who had given them the opportunity to go into the promised land. But they rebelled, and they refused to go. We're not going. The second question but with whom was God angry with for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned? Those whose bodies fell in the wilderness? You see, this has been going on for a whole generation now. So the 40-year-olds the that started out with them from Egypt, they're 80 now. That would be kind of like Moses, right? Uh, these older guys and gals. And, and then there are some newbies who came along because they had families. And so now they've got some that are actually 30s, 20s, and even under 20. And so the way God resolves this is he says that those 20 and under will live to see the promised land. But those who are over 20, because of the rebelliousness, they will not enter my rest. They will not enter that promised land. Instead of dying in that promised land, they will die out in the wilderness. So the third rhetorical question is this. And to whom did God swear that they would not enter his rest? Was it not those who were disobedient, who had lost faith in God? You see, the Israelites tried to write a new ending to the story. And the story was called, since we're on old TV shows, remember Father Knows Best? Was that a TV show? I did, actually never watched that, but I heard about it. Uh, I'm, I'm old, but I'm not that old. Some of you may be that old that you remember Father Knows Best. But what I do know is that we translate that show into a new show. It's called I Know Best. And that's what the Israelites did. They said, I know best. And so they went and did something crazy. God had already told them, hey, you lost your chance. I offered you the place of rest, the promised land, a beautiful place for you to die, 
But you decided, no, rather, you're, you're fearful of getting slaughtered by the giants in there, by the big army. So you decided you'd rather go back to Egypt. Well, you're not going to be able to go back to Egypt either. You're too old. You're going to die in the wilderness. So the people all decided that they would repent. So they went and they knelt down and they repented to God. And then they decided that they would write their own story. I know best. So they organized the battalions and the men and the women. And they crossed over into the promised land on their own. And they were slaughtered. They did not make it. Because they had been unfaithful to God and God's unfaithfulness meant that they would not enter the place of rest, even under their own power, maybe especially under their own power. So what is our problem? Have we allowed ourselves to succumb to the idea that God will never do anything for us? Have we lost confidence in the faithfulness of God? Have we allowed the seeds of failure and discouragement and loss of faith to grow in our gardens? As the preacher says it in verse 12. We are to see to it that not one of us has an evil, unbelieving heart. For verse 12 of our reading today. But how do we do that? See, this is, this is exclusive in the sense of the whole body. There is, uh, there is no one, um, I'm sorry, inclusive. There is no one excluded we are to make sure that no one has an evil and unbelieving heart. But what do we do when people fall away, drift away from the church, don't become part of a church, just kind of go off onto their own? How do we respond to that? It's hard. I, I get it. <laughs> I'm uncomfortable with it. But one of the issues for us as the church, I think, is that we, we have become backwards. We have created an inside-out church instead of an outside-in church. What do I mean by that? Um, so how many of us are ready to go and to greet new people to get to know them, really to get to know them, and to invite them into the fellowship? I mean, if people walk in on their own, uh, then we kind of just accept them. But do we really develop the relationships? Another way of putting this is, how do you fish for people? First of all, do you agree with the point that you should be fishing for people? Um, some Christians today would say that that's not their job. That's the job of the fisher people, like the pastors, or the lay leaders, or the evangelists. And what I'm wondering 
as if we haven't gotten the church inside out. Because we expect people to come in. But do we really go out to connect with people in relationship so that they might become intrigued? You mean you go to a church? You're a Christian? You're a weirdo? Yes. And I love it. And, and you see, my point is, you know, we have tried to focus on bringing people in when we should really be focused on going out to people. I think that is what has become more apparent for me um, over the last decade especially. And what's cropping up for me as I study this book of Hebrews. I think we've built the church inside out instead of outside in so that we don't even know how to fish for people anymore. There was an old story that used to say that we used to teach people how to fish, but it was like this fishing club that would gather every Wednesday and they'd talk about stories of when they went fishing and the big fish that they had caught, but they never actually went out fishing. But the problem for us is we don't even gather to talk about fishing. <laughs> and so what, what, what this drives me to is what did, the early church, what did the early church look like? And maybe that's what we need to begin to look more like. How did the early church do this work of encouragement? Well, let's take a look here. This is what discipleship looked like in the early church. Last summer, I did this big series on, um, in, on temple and house church. I don't know if you remember that. Um, but one of the things that, um, that became clear for me as I worked on that series was that, um, that the, the church, when it, that early church, when they gathered, they gathered at the temple for prayers every day. And then they were gathering in people's homes every day. And so they were in the synagogue or the temple, in the large gathering space like this, and they were worshiping. And then they also gathered for fellowship and for communion. They did communion in the house churches, in the homes. And, and so... They gathered every day. We gather for an hour a week. And we expect the same outcomes. So that's perhaps my first point of disconnection with how we do church today. And I'm praying and I'm thinking and I'm hearing from God and I've got some ideas that you'll be hearing more about because this book of Hebrews is stirring up stuff within me. I told you I didn't want to do it. And so, the second thing that I see in the early church was that they had a loving, grace-filled accountability with one another. I mean, it was amazing to see what Peter, James, and John did with Jesus. You see, we, we have... 
we have different sizes of groups in this early church of disciples. So um, in the Gospels, it tells us briefly about that there were groups of 70 disciples, 72 disciples. And then, um, then it also talks about the 12 a lot. But then Jesus often took with him just three, Peter, James, and John. And in a sense, I think they were held to a higher sense of accountability by Jesus. And, and so Jesus never stopped loving them. Jesus never stopped caring for them. But he didn't let bad behavior continue. When Jesus asked his disciples who he was, Peter spoke on behalf of all of them, you're the Messiah, you're the Christ, we're going to follow you. And then Jesus' next statement is, okay, um, I'm going to go to the cross, <laughs> I'm going I'm to get crucified, and I'm going to die, and you need to pick up your cross too. No way, Jesus, Peter says, that's never going to happen to you. Remember what Jesus tells Peter? Get behind me, Satan. That's loving accountability. Peter understood that his I know best plan was not God's plan. And so he had to die to Peter's I know best plan and allow God's plan to continue. The third thing that I see in the early church is that they knew how to rest. They understood the Sabbath. And they rested, not just eternally when they died, but they rested on their Sabbath. And that rest was also time each day of prayer and worship of God. And, you know, whether it was in the temple or in the house, there was every day there was this connection and so that was their Sabbath. That was their rest because they were working otherwise. They had jobs. They had, they had people to take care of. They had mouths to feed. And, and so they were busy working their daily jobs. But they also made sure that they had time to honor the Sabbath. We'll take a look more at rest next week because that's where this next portion of this sermon goes And the fourth thing is that they provided balance. So they had a balance of their life of worshiping God, spending time devoted to God. But then they also spent time in fellowship with one another, with brothers and sisters in Christ. That's how the preacher addresses this congregation, this house church that he's sending this sermon to. He keeps referring to them as his dear brothers and sisters. And, and so they, they had time in fellowship with one another, with others who were followers, believers. And then the third piece was that they went out together with the purpose of sharing the mission of Christ. And so they balanced their lives with those three things. Now, that is a quick picture of, of the early church. 
Um, it's not an exhaustive one, but I think it gives us an idea of how different it was than how we live in the church today. And like I said, we have some ideas of how we can begin to replicate the early church because I think that's what our time calls for from the church. That we're not so focused on how many people we're packing in for worship, but we're more focused on how many people are we connecting with in relationship so that their questions about our lives and our lifestyle can reflect and bring glory to Christ. The key to this whole section, I think, is verse 13. This is what it says. Now, I don't like this translation. I'm going to tell you that right off bat here. Um, and I'm going to suggest a change. Uh, but let me read what it's written as here. You must warn each other every day while it is still today. Remember that verse 7 where it began today? The Holy Spirit has said today. So he's bringing up that today again. So you must warn each other every day while it is still today so that none of you will be deceived by sin and hardened against God by unbelief. So a warning is the wrong translation. So the right translation, well, let's go to the literal translation. And that word is exhortation. So what, what it gets translated out as literally is this. You must exhort one another every day. Now, I remember, you know, I'm a preacher. I've done all the different kinds of surveys that they have on spiritual gifts. I mean, there's dozens of them out there. I think I've probably taken every one of them. One of them I took years ago told me that I had the gift of exhortation. I thought, oh, no. Exhortation, that means I yell at people all the time. They've been watching me with my kids. This is when I was a young father. And, and, and so what I began to do is, like I always do when I get into, into crisis mode, is I began to analyze what does this exhortation mean. And what I, what I discovered was to exhort someone actually doesn't mean to yell at them. Phew! How relieved I was. And, and so what I learned was that exhort means to teach and Exhort means to encourage, to bring encouragement. That's why warn is the exact wrong word to translate this with. And I'm sorry, translators, you have a lot more knowledge than I do. But I'm going to disagree with you on this one. We're not to warn one another. We're to encourage one another. We're to teach one another. And this is what we are to teach This is from chapter 1, the first four verses that we began with. Long ago, God spoke many times and many ways to our ancestors through the prophets. And now in these final days, he has spoken to us through his son. God promised everything to the son as an inheritance. And through the son, he created the universe. 
my favorite verse coming up here. And the sun radiates God's own glory and expresses the very character of God. And he sustains everything by the mighty power of his word. When he has cleansed us from our sins, when he had cleansed us from our sins, he sat down in the place of honor at the right hand of the majestic God in heaven. This shows that the Son is far greater than the angels, just as the name God gave him is greater than their names. Friends, listen to that end of verse 3. That God radiates the glory and expresses the very character of God as he sustains everything by his mighty, powerful word that when he cleansed you and me from our sins, did you hear that? Your sins, they're cleansed. They're gone. You are free. And when he did that, that's when he sat down at the right hand of God. May all praise, honor, and glory be to God through his son, Jesus Christ. He has faith in you. Friends, let's not lose faith in him. Amen.